And we read the instructions the Lord gave Joshua as they stood together there outside of Jericho. Now we will read that Joshua in turn gave those same instructions to his commanders and that the priests and the army followed them to the letter. So we're beginning to read at Joshua chapter 6, verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Now, it's no surprise that the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned first in these instructions. It will occupy center stage and be mentioned nine times in the verses that follow. It's Yahweh's presence indicated by the ark that is going to tell the tale in Jericho, just as it told the tale at the crossing of the Jordan. As Paul would later observe, God works as he does to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The ram's horn, making their great martial sound, glorified the Ark and the presence of the Lord. You'll notice that here it said that they blew their trumpets not before the Ark, but simply before the Lord. That's the point. They are going before the Lord. He is in the procession. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. The silence of the people compared to the noise being made by the trumpets and Uh, The march uh, accents further the significance of Yahweh's presence and the comparative insignificance of the army. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, Before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now you expect, upon hearing Joshua's command to shout, that immediately the army would raise a war cry, a thunderous roar, and we would see what was uh, to follow. But in a typically brilliant piece of narrative composition, now follow some instructions that Joshua had obviously previously given. In this way, the narrator emphasizes what is said here by making the reader wait for the climax. And what is emphasized is the necessity of Israel's strict obedience to the Lord. 
And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. The phrase devoted to the Lord for destruction actually is the translation of a single Hebrew noun, cherem, referring to the place, the placing of something off limits giving it irrevocably to the Lord, sometimes for destruction, sometimes as a gift. The point is that when something is devoted in this way, one renounces any further interest in the object so devoted. The point to which we will return is that there was something sacred about the destruction of Jericho. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. A failure to respect the devotion of something to the Lord is going to bring upon Israel exactly the same fate. She too will be devoted to the Lord for destruction. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Since Jericho was devoted to the Lord, what remained of her treasure belonged to him. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Notice how briefly the actual battle is described and how little interest is shown in Israel's military exploits. The actual battle was the anticlimax. Yahweh had already won the victory. Now, as you may be aware, there has been for many years, and continues to be today, a debate concerning the archaeology of Jericho, and how it may confirm or disprove the account of the city's destruction in Joshua chapter 6. When I was a boy, we often heard of the statement of John Garstang, an English archaeologist, that he had found the walls that had fallen down. Since then, Garstang's conclusions have been subjected to thorough examination and, as is far too often the case, have both been confirmed by some archaeologists and refuted by others. Like most so-called science, Data from archaeology is susceptible to very different interpretations. There's also a problem posed by erosion. Even some staunch evangelical scholars of the archaeology of Jericho have concluded that the ruins of the biblical city were largely eroded by wind and rain and cannot be usefully recovered. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. This final section of the chapter uh, serves to emphasize that everything was done according to the Lord's instructions. The people had been obedient to Yahweh in respect both to Rahab, the vow that the spies had made was strictly fulfilled, and the devoted things from Jericho, which were placed where they belonged in the Lord's treasury. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they 
brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab and her family were first put outside the camp because they would have been unclean, ceremonially impure. But obviously that situation did not last. Time came when Rahab, presumably as well as her family, became full members of Israel. She sought mercy from the Lord and she found it. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who raises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Since Jericho had been devoted to destruction, placed under permanent ban for the sake of the Lord, any effort to rebuild it would be an offense uh, against Yahweh himself. So Joshua's curse here, in effect, became a prophecy. We read in 1 Kings 16.34 that Jericho was rebuilt during the reign of the wicked king Ahab, but the builder, one Heel of Bethel, lost both his firstborn son and his youngest son as a result. Now, our father, this is one of the great miracles uh, narrated in Holy Scripture, one of the great demonstrations of your power. It is amazing that we are speaking to one who did this, who was there at that moment. And we thank you for the lessons it so clearly teaches of your faithfulness to your promise and to your people, of our absolute dependence upon your gifts, graces, and the working of your power, that salvation is your gift, not our achievement. Help us to take all of them to heart again, anew and afresh. But help us too, as we consider something else in this chapter of great importance in our time. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're all familiar with this narrative, and as children in Sunday school, many of us learn to sing of the victory of Israel at Jericho and how the walls came tumbling down. But we ordinarily paid little or no attention to the fact that when the walls came tumbling down, the Israelite army killed every man, woman, and child in the city, the young and old alike, and then all the animals as well. This strikes the modern reader as repellent, as actually utterly immoral. How could God have ordered such a thing to be done? G. Bromley Oxnam a prominent Methodist bishop of the first half of the 20th century, was thinking of an event like this when he referred to the God of the Old Testament as a dirty bully. And the so-called new atheists, Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, and the like, regularly mention Israel's extermination of the Canaanites as proof that there is no moral enlightenment to be found in the Bible, and that Christianity is as bloodthirsty a religion as any other. While this objection has been around a very long time, 
In this day and age, our day and age, it is particularly important for Christians, especially in the Western world, to think it through and to have an answer for those who raise it. The fact is, this argument against our faith is perhaps more powerful today than it has ever been before. It is powerful in an effete and comfortable age such as ours. People nowadays feel the force of it in a way they have not typically felt its force in the past. If, for example, you read the accounts of British and American thinking during the Second World War, you will find that there was precious little concern about the thousands upon thousands of old men, women, and children who were dying in Germany every night as their cities were drenched with bombs and burned to ashes. Americans tended to think that those people were getting what they deserved. There was very little hand-wringing after the two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan. The thought of most seemed to be them or us. If they didn't want to be destroyed, they should have surrendered. Now, I'm not saying that we should have thought that way or that there weren't voices in Britain and America raising concerns about the ethics of area bombing. There certainly were. But it's an interesting fact that of the senior British commanders in the Second World War, Arthur Harris, the commander of the bomber forces of the RAF, a man who was an unrepentant advocate of the nighttime area bombing of German cities and populations, was the only one not to be given a peerage after the victory. After the war was won, the British public did not want to remember what they had done. In the light of day, it seemed unworthy of them. And they certainly didn't wish to reward the man who had done it for them. But today, we live largely at peace. Our wars, such as they are, are both highly controversial, lots of citizens thinking they're wrong and shouldn't be conducted, and at the same time, they have comparatively little effect on the population. If all of Al-Qaeda all the men, women, and children associated with that movement were somehow to be found in a single city, I suspect there would be comparatively little outcry if that entire city were destroyed by attack from the air. But they're spread throughout the Middle East. They're hard to find, even more difficult to eliminate. And so it is that this particular objection to our Christian confidence in the teaching of the Bible has surfaced as particularly potent or a particularly powerful objection in our time. Now, there are a number of important responses that can be made to this objection, some of the most important of which are highlighted in the text itself. But let me begin with some of the less important ones. There is first the penchant of the Hebrew language for hyperbole exaggeration for effect. We may find this odd, though we really shouldn't. We English speakers use hyperbole much more often than we realize, and it is a daily feature of our public and political discourse, as well as the language we use to describe sporting events. We may find it odd, but it was a commonplace of Hebrew, and for that matter, of Semitic style, to exaggerate, and it remains so today. We're going to find that many of the summary statements describing Israel's victories that we will read in the book of Joshua 
are exaggerations in typical forms, ways that would have been immediately appreciated by those who first heard the book of Joshua read. For example, we will read in chapter 10, verse 40, that so far as southern Canaan was concerned, after a string of battles that Joshua uh, fought, he devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord had commanded. But that cannot be taken literally, for later in the book we're going to learn that not everyone had been destroyed, that there were in fact a good number of Canaanites remaining in that part of the land. Indeed, in chapter 10, verse 20, we'll read that in his battle with the five Amorite kings, Joshua struck them a great blow until they were wiped out. But in the next phrase, we read of the Amorite survivors making their way to their fortified cities. Obviously, they weren't all wiped out. It is the typical ancient Near Eastern way of reporting a victory to an exaggerated scope. Examples both in the Bible and in extra-biblical ancient Near Eastern literature uh, abound. Everyone in those days would have understood that to say that he left nothing that breathed alive did not literally mean that every person and animal had been destroyed. So with regard to the statement in verse 21, where children are not explicitly named, it is not by any means certain that every man, woman, and child in Jericho was in fact killed. Some have suggested that women and children, which we will read later in Joshua, was more formulaic than literally precise. Others have concluded that it was the leadership of the state and the army that were actually thoroughly eliminated. We cannot say for sure, but Joshua provides ample evidence that such descriptions should not be read overly literally. That doesn't mean, of course, that Israel did not kill a great number of Canaanites as she took possession of the land. But it reminds us to treat the text seriously and to understand it in its context. Second, it's a mistake to associate the biblical narrative of the conquest of Canaan with historical and especially more recent examples of ethnic cleansing or religious or secular pogroms. Richard Dawkins, for example, not somebody you can rely on to provide an even-handed treatment of almost any subject, describes the conquest of Canaan as an ethnic cleansing. Such a program of systematic murder as the Turks conducted against the Armenians or the Nazis against the Jews. He describes Israel's taking of Canaan as being done with xenophobic relish. They wanted to exterminate these people from the face of the earth. But there was nothing racial and nothing ethnic in Israel's conquest of Canaan. The motivations were very different, as we shall see. The fact that Rahab, a Canaanite herself, was welcomed into Israel's life together with her family is evidence that the destruction of Jericho had a different reason than that the Israelites saw themselves as a superior race or that they regarded the Canaanites as their genetic inferiors. They never raped, they never raped women, as forces bent on genocide typically do still today and certainly did in the ancient world. It's a lack of imagination on the part of modern Americans, together with their ignorance of what the Bible actually says, that make them so susceptible to the misleading rhetoric of Christianity's critics and cultured despisers. This was no genocide. 
And once in possession of the promised land, Israel not only didn't do this again, she was forbidden to do this. In 1 Kings, or 2 Kings rather, 6.22, the prophet Elisha enunciated for Israel what I think we may regard as one of the earliest specimens of the ethics of just war. When the king of Israel asked Elisha whether he should kill the enemy soldiers whom the Lord had delivered into his hand, Elisha replied, Do not kill them. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword and bow? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. The conquest of Canaan was a different case and was handled differently. That leads us to the more significant considerations and responses to the accusation that Israel's conquest of the promised land was a horrible act of political mass murder. Bible is very careful to say that Canaan got what it deserved, nothing more, nothing less. As we've already noted, the Lord withheld the promised land from his people Israel for four and a half centuries because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. But when Israel crossed into Canaan, finally, the Lord's patience with that people had been exhausted. He had been very patient, extraordinarily patient, But that patience had brought nothing in response from the Canaanites. Canaanite culture was debased. It may not be the worst that the world has ever seen, but it was bad by any standard. Their sexual ethics were atrocious. Incest, bestiality, cultic prostitution were commonplace. And child sacrifice was also practiced. By the standards of most subsequent human cultures, Canaanite culture was particularly ugly. That's not to say that they were not an intelligent and able people. They were great builders, inventors, artisans. They were enterprising merchants. They are directly responsible for what is perhaps the most influential development in human history, the alphabet. So they were a very able people who lived deeply wicked lives. Remind you of anything? No doubt they saw their lives as perfectly normal and acceptable, but then we are well used to human beings growing comfortable with deeply perverse behavior. But what is emphatically taught in Deuteronomy and Joshua is that Canaan was taken and the Canaanites were destroyed to the extent that they were as an act of divine judgment. The Lord used Israel to execute judgment on a people that deserved, richly deserved that judgment. Proof of the nature of this conquest as moral judgment is powerfully provided in verse 18 when Israel herself is threatened with precisely the same punishment that befell the citizens of Canaan should she likewise betray the Lord as they did. As it happened, of course, that punishment would eventually befall Israel, precisely became because she became just like the Canaanites, morally and spiritually. No distinction was going to be made between the Canaanites and the Israelites if they lived the same way and if they were equally indifferent to the law of God. And remember this, As Rahab shows, any Canaanite that sought mercy from Israel's God could have avoided the catastrophe 
that befell the rest of his countrymen. The fact that few sought that mercy, even after it became obvious that they could not withstand the Israelite invasion, is some evidence of the hardness of their hearts and the depravity of their lives. Indeed, it's striking to read in chapter 11, verses 19 to 20, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be destroyed. That seems to suggest, does it not, that had the Canaanites been willing, treaties might have spared them the destruction of their cities and their populations. But they remained unwilling to submit because God was determined to judge them. Nowadays, we hear people say, if God exists, let him show himself. But of course, he had shown himself. If the plagues of Egypt, if the parting of the Red Sea, if crossing the Jordan River on dry land are not the Lord showing himself, pray tell what would be. Rahab had drawn the obvious conclusion One may argue that none of this is historically credible, that those miracles never happened. But the entire historical account in the Bible presumes that they did. To judge Yahweh unjust because of what one reads in Joshua 6, one must at least read what comes before it and what comes after. That leads us to the most important consideration of all and the most categorical reply to the complaint that the conquest of Canaan was mass murder and so immoral. As the text is plain to emphasize, it was not Israel, but Israel's God, Yahweh himself, who destroyed Jericho and its population. The critics imagine that this is proof that there is no such God, since no true God would do such a thing. But of course, in logic, that's known as the fallacy of petitio principii, or begging the question. The criticism of Yahweh's determination to destroy the people of Canaan assumes that such a thing ought not to be done by God or anyone else. Therefore, God, should he exist, would not have done it. But that's precisely what has to be proved. It can't be made the basis of the objection or the complaint. Now think about this. What do we believe about God? Indeed, what do most Americans still believe about God, however vaguely, however ignorantly. Well, they believe that God is the giver of life and that he has the authority both to give it and to take it. Indeed, at the time of death, a great many Americans who hardly take God seriously at other times speak as if they really believed that it was God's will that this person should die at such and such a time and in such and such a way. In other words, God is taking life every day. He's taking it from old people. He's taking it from the very young. He is taking it from men. He's taking it from women. He is taking it by disease, by accident, by war, by famine, by violent crime. This life belongs to him. It is his because he made it. He has an absolute right to do with it what he pleases. Who will or can deny to the God of the Bible the absolute authority over the life of every human being since that life is his own creation. So if he 
chose to judge and punish and execute the Canaanites, by what principle could anyone charge him with a fault all the more when the Canaanites so richly deserved their punishment? If Richard Dawkins and others had said that they do not wish to believe in a God who gives and takes life, we could accept that as the statement of a man who knows his own mind. But such a statement tells us nothing about God, about who God is, or how God thinks, or what God is like. It tells us only about Richard Dawkins and what he thinks. The fact is every single man, woman, and child in Jericho was going to die eventually. As the scripture says, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Further, most Americans expect God to be just, to be fair, to be consistent in what he does. That is, they expect that God will punish sin and will reward righteousness, and always. And that's precisely what Joshua tells us God did at Jericho. He punished sin... And he rewarded the righteousness of that generation of Israelites. Remember, he had punished the previous generation of Israelites by denying them entrance into the promised land. Some of them, you remember, he swallowed up in an earthquake immediately or burned with fire and forcing Israel to wait to receive her inheritance until that entire generation had died off. That was God's judgment. But this generation had proved itself faithful. They not only believed in God, they readily obeyed his commandments. A great point is made of that in Joshua 6. The chapter is as repetitive as it is in large part to emphasize that Israel did precisely what she had been told to do. The fact is, what happened there at Jericho happens every day all over this world to countless human beings. Their sin pays a wage. They suffer judgment because of it. The punishment might be prison. Remember, the Bible says that the magistrate is a servant of God to punish wrongdoers. It might be public humiliation. It might be venereal disease or cirrhosis of the liver. It might be bankruptcy or divorce or alienation and isolation from other people. Or it may be death. But it's happening all the time, everywhere. We tend to notice it more when it happens all at once to many. But the fact is judgment is woven into the fabric of human life and experience and it cannot be removed from it. To be sure, God does not always judge sin or reward righteousness immediately in this life. The Bible is very candid about that. The judgment of some awaits the next world, as does the reward of others. But that there is such a judgment and is such reward is not only a fundamental article of biblical faith, it's an observation of life that can be made by anyone at any time who will just think about what he or she sees. No one escapes punishment. No one ever has. No one ever shall, except those who find mercy with God by seeking it and trusting in him, as did Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. If the critics of our faith had said simply that they did not want to believe in a God who punished sin 
or that they would not believe in such a God. We could understand that well enough. We have felt the same reluctance to face the solemn fact of divine judgment. But not to want it to be true is hardly the same thing as proving God to be unjust, still less proving that he doesn't exist. Human beings have an unbelievable capacity to want things not to be true that are obviously true. There is judgment everywhere you look. It takes some faith to believe that there's no judge. And finally, do you really want a world without judgment? Are you ready to face the consequences of this? Here is Yale theologian Miroslav Volf. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Wrath in the Bible, as you remember, with reference to God, is his, the execution of his justice. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. If God is holy and if God is love, there is and must be rigorous judgment. Like it or not, we see it everywhere we look in this world and we are warned in a hundred ways to expect it in the world to come. In whose hands would you rather that judgment be? Some implacable and impersonal force that cares for neither you nor anyone else or the God whose ways are altogether righteous and who delights to show mercy to those who seek him. It is in fact the only comfort anyone can ever find in the face of human evil that the one who judges that evil is the sort of person who stands ready to forgive if only people will genuinely seek that forgiveness from his hand. The lesson of Jericho is most definitely not that there is no God. The lesson of Jericho is do what Rahab did and prepare to meet your God. Amen.